a Highline podcast. We live in a complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Hello, hello. How's everyone doing tonight? We're doing Great. it. Jumping in, huh? Yeah, I have to. Dive in feet first. <laughs> I have to, he says. <laughs> All right, I'm game. Hello, friends. What's cooking? I'm oh. drinking a delicious cocktail. Yeah, actually, this is really tasty. Hey, mm-hmm. there you go. Hitting the spot. <laughs> Just like my whiskey is. He's licking his glass. It's so good. Yeah, there's some little <laughs> Peshad bitters dripping down the Wait, side. What? <laughs> Torna, do you know how to solve that problem of the tiny little bits of like whiskey that dribble off the bottle when I pour? Am I pouring wrong? Twist it. Twist your bottle. As you pour? As you finish the pour. Like at the end. Of course that would solve the problem. Right. I was a waitress. Okay. I mean, (laughs) I guess that's kind of how you do wine, so. Yeah, right. For the same reason, probably. I just feel like I'm always wasting just a tiny bit of whiskey at a time. and That's when you're done. You just like suckle the bottle. (laughs) Yeah. So it's proper. Which is normally what I do, but I feel ridiculous. Yeah, every drop is sacred. <laughs> it truly is. With this stuff, absolutely. Mm. Get it out of the way then. I'm still on the 11-year-old Lagavulin whiskey, and I <laughs> I was looking forward to it tonight. You Absol- earned it? I've earned it, and it's absolutely oh. hitting the spot. Nice. I wasn't looking forward to any drink in particular because... Um, I rolled in about 10 minutes ago and said, <laughs> oh, crap, we're recording. I need a drink. And so I threw some stuff in a glass and we're having a, a gin fizz. He there threw some stuff in a glass. He, he it, that involves egg whites and like carefully designed bitters on the top. So it's quite beautiful. <laughs> Torn yeah. can throw things together very well. <laughs> yeah. Remember when I was there, Kat, and... Torna was like, yeah, I'll, I'll just whip something up for breakfast. And he, ma- he made those spectacular Cornish empanadas. game hen empanadas for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, it was pretty great. Just throw something <laughs> in a pan. That was a good breakfast. Just whip a breakfast together. I had that beautiful steak with the chimichurri. The oh, night my. Mm, the Wagyu steak. Yes. Wagyu? Is that how you say it? Wagyu, yeah. Wagyu. Mm. Wonderful. Farms Wagyu from Idaho. Good stuff. Mm. So the gin fizz, tell me about how you threw this thing together. Oh, right. Um, Recipe. So uh, in a cocktail shaker, I uh, have two ounces of gin per drink. I made a double batch, but per drink, two ounces of gin, three quarters an ounce of lemon juice, three quarters an ounce of simple syrup, and then an egg white. Technically, each drink takes its own egg white but I just did one large egg for the two cocktails and and it ended up okay. Um, And then I think I measured something wrong and they didn't quite fill the glasses as much as I liked. So I topped it off with a little bit of club soda and I actually really like that. Hmm. The the slight bubbly is actually really nice. Hmm. Hmm. 
And then you get this nice, like, you know, foam on the top because of the egg white. And I took a, some Peshad bitters, which are red, and I just tipped them and slashed across the top of the glass. So you get, like, a line of bitters. And then with a straw, I uh, swipe back and forth inside of the foam. And it makes kind of like a... Uh, diagonal. A diagonal, like an argyle pattern. Mm-hmm. Wow. I was going to say a, a sine wave, but it's not a wave. It's pointed it's pointy it's fabulous it does taste a little uh i guess like more refreshing than it tastes a little lighter than other drinks i've had with the egg white and i think that's because of the club soda but it's nice it is like i think it makes it a little bit more like drinkable sometimes the egg white gets really thick yeah and it kind of coats your mouth and Mm -hmm. you kind of get some phlegm action going right but the single good knows. for podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> Great for podcasting. I suppose Alex would know he drank a white Russian with heavy mm-hmm. cream three <laughs> episodes ago. That madman. <laughs> what? I can't speak much. I chugged a white claw. True. Which was also a drink <laughs> mistake for podcasting. Man, the burps that haunted me <laughs> were the worst. Did that go into like the next day? Um, no, surprisingly, it kind of, that feeling had worn off by the time we were done. Cause we talked for a good two and a half hours on that one. Oh, mm. yes. what a good time it was. Yeah. So you threw this drink together and it ended up being so good that you're like, waste, waste not anything by licking the glass. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I say I threw it together. I mean, like Gen Fizz is a real drink. I mean, it's, it's a classic, but I was like, what do I have on the shelf? Right. Any history you know at the top of your head? I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's gin, baby. It's gin. That's enough. (laughs) It's enough to go on. I'll have to find the background of the egg white thing. I don't don't even know when that started. Do any... After the late 1800s, I'm sure. Do any real or good cocktails use a whole egg? Or is it always... Yeah. uh, Flips. There's really? drinks called Flips, and they have an egg yolk in them. Mm. Generally, like, they're bourbon, and it ends up being more um, heavier, richer. You can make like a yeah, quick, dude. a bourbon flip you can do in like an eggnog style. So it's like a quick eggnog almost. So mm. instead of like cooking everything down to a custard and yada, 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 you can do like the 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 whole egg with the bourbon and and do like kind of a insta eggnog which is good i wonder if there's any that just have an egg yolk not that i know of but and take the the take the whites out you mean <laughs> yeah gross. yeah just a yolk i might <laughs> have to come up with something Ugh. vodka orange juice and like egg no yolk. Yeah. that reminds before you like no, bodybuild oh. or something yeah you know that scene in napoleon dynamite when that farmer cracks the egg into the orange juice Oh, that's yes. what you just reminded me of. That's nasty. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty gross. That always grossed me out. I don't think I drank orange juice for a while after seeing that for the first time. I was like, yeah, I'm just imagining egg in it now. Can't handle this. Totally. Speaking of eggs, I have beef with breakfast foods being defined as breakfast <laughs> foods. I don't okay. know if you guys saw my tweet this morning. I did but not. I think <laughs> I did. <laughs> I was pretty proud of my tweet because like I don't I don't like that 
you know, it, it's become an event when people were like, oh, I had breakfast for dinner. You know, you make like bacon and eggs and toast for dinner. It's like, yeah, it's just food, man. It doesn't have to be breakfast. I know it's just good marketing. I'm just annoyed by it, you know, because I'm eating nice eggs and sausages for dinner, which is very high in protein, high in fat. Like if you're a keto person, that's the way to go. Um, Meanwhile, other people are shoveling like spoonfuls of the craziest sugar cereals in their face for breakfast and calling it like most important meal of the day. It's just, <laughs> it annoys me. Eggs and toast have been marginalized. Marginal normalized eggs and toast everywhere for every meal. <laughs> if anything, yeah. if anything, you know who does this right is Perkins, the restaurant Perkins or Denny's. You know, I mean, Perk. they don't they they got the idea right. <laughs> right. I don't the, think they do it right. What what is Perkins? It's like twenty four hour breakfast. What? Oh, is that a thing? Is that a Montana thing? Oh my it's god, definitely not everywhere. just a Montana thing, but oh, is it like a not a Bay Area Midwest thing? thing they slash must, yeah. Think here. like a Denny's or IHOP or Waffle yeah. House or you know these places. Yeah, same things. And it's a breakfast menu all day. And I just want to call it menu all day because breakfast foods yeah. is fake news. I, food all day. I, uh, I've said this before, but I eat weird not breakfast things for breakfast. So oh, right. I had some involtini for breakfast. What is involtini? Oh, I made excellent. it Pasta? last week uh, while my friends were in town. It's, uh, you know, like stuffed pasta shells. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, but instead of a pasta shell, you roll it up inside of an eggplant. Oh, yummy. So, really tasty. That sounds pretty nice. good. Made that for dinner and then had it for breakfast. There you go. Along as the well same lines. Some tomatoes and mozzarella. <laughs> Very Italian. And some <laughs> mozzarella. tomato basil galette. <gasps> Do you have any more of that? Uh, I have pastry dough. Mm. So, I could give you some and you can make one. That's true. You can fill it whatever you want. Oh, yeah. Nice. I cool. need to use it, actually. It might even be bad. Thank, okay. you, for, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> okay. Not bad, but like if it's in the fridge for like a few days, it starts the gluten starts to uh, lose its uh, potency. I don't know how to explain it. So it like doesn't really roll out. Oh, It's right. elasticity. It has too much elasticity. So, so you roll it out and then it springs back to like its blob size. Oh. Hmm. Silly dough. Right. Along the same lines, I think that the concept of holiday foods should be done like the Thanksgiving turkey, like just eat turkey all year round. If you like eating turkey, you know, Easter ham is just ham. It's just ham. Just eat ham if you want it. Don't wait for Easter. Preach. Yeah. I'm just going <laughs> to do about that. Just ham. I love ham, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've never, I don't think, I don't know if we've ever done an Easter where we like had ham. I don't think to... That's because you're Italian. That's true. They do like the 12-course fish dinner. Yeah, right. Traditional with lamb, lamb and mint jelly. Mm. Mm. That's good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Guys, why can't you make money being a chef? Well, many (laughs) people do. Not really. (laughs) Some do. YouTube, man. You can do anything But you have to do a lot of cocaine (laughs) to get there. I'm not ready for that yet. Anyone want to hire me for their personal chef? (laughs) Or you got to be mean like Gordon Ramsay. (laughs) You do. Well, you have to do both. Oh, the cocaine and You have to sleep with all the bartenders and waitresses, and then eventually you make it. Literally, none of those things are in my (laughs) sphere of... 
interest expertise so <laughs> not with that no attitude cocaine, Torna. no anger no, saddle up yeah. boy <laughs> learn those skills you entrepreneur <laughs> <laughs> devote your life to the craft and develop right, the drug habit right. life welcome is to never- my master class <laughs> today we're gonna learn how to do cocaine yeah <laughs> Life is a never-ending series of educations. Yeah, yes, so true. Get after yeah. it if you want to make money being a chef. <laughs> what? And in the there meantime, there is no transition. There's a zero <laughs> no, transition. We want to talk about tonight. I'm just thinking about uh, cooking now. I'm hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah, one of my food rants. Classic food no, rants from good. Henning. That's a segment now. Salsa cereal. Whatever. Yeah. Right. Breakfast. That's all we've got so far. But well, and seasonal foods. I'll think. We'll add more to the list. I'll think of some more. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm full of food takes. Hot soup. Hot soup. One minor um, bookkeeping thing. Bookkeeping thing. Uh, I got a shout out to my buddy Sam. He sent me a message about last week's episode. He said, great episode this week. Didn't realize how little I knew about taxes. Lots to think about. So, oh, cool. Thanks for listening, buddy. Love you. I haven't seen you in a while, but we should catch up. <laughs> right on. I love that. I still don't know much about taxes, and it's annoying to me. No, me neither. That's why I, I was mean, like, don't. Yeah, no, I'm, I don't know much. Fair. Excellent bookkeeping. Well, um, well, randomly on the top, <laughs> going back to Sam, if oh. we ever decide to do a podcast hinting that has to do with men's fashion and things like that, which we've discussed before, mm-hmm. Sam is a very well-dressed young man. So mm. he's he's got some great style. So he'd be a, he'd be a guy to consult on anything that we might talk about in the future. Excellent. I was just telling someone about that podcast idea. Who was I? Oh, it was at uh, Tim's, was birthday. At Tim's birthday. I was telling yeah. Sarah about the idea. Mm, that would be a good one. That's one of those where, like, if we ever start that, it's literally because you and now Sam dress very well, and I know nothing. So I would just be like, teach me anything and everything you know, because I wear the same pair of jeans and black shirts all week. Fair. I I used to dress a lot better. Now I just look dirty and homeless most of the time, but <laughs> I can, you know, I can dress up on occasion. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The college days, man. You were full of great outfits. The thing is, is when I'm out doing, like most people that don't see me all the time, it's usually at events, so I kind of dress to the T. Right. So like, Steven, you're such a well-dressed person. I'm like, yeah, about once a month, I dress up. You should see me while I'm on the work site, right? Cat can, like, look at me. I think you look nice. I complimented your shirt That's when I true. came in today. You said it's a work shirt. I think you could wear that out. Probably could. Everything's yeah. just covered in dirt. That's the biggest well, thing. That's because he has great taste. <laughs> that's the thing. And that's why I want to podcast about men's fashion with him. Be there excellent. That would be, that would be fun. That would be a fun, low stress. And the episodes could be like 20 minutes long. And it's just about one facet of like here's 20 minutes about the french tuck or whatever you know <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't even know what the french tuck is <laughs> is it a thing what I have no the idea. what the french tuck dude what <laughs> i know something yeah i learned it from queer eye from tan Fran. it's um for larger dudes like me that french tuck helps 
um, like elongate the body and make you look less chubby by only tucking in like right at the belt buckle and only a few inches out the side. So you tuck in the front of the shirt and let the back hang gives you a very casual look. Also half a dressed up look. And because it creates that that contrast between the front and the back, it makes you look thinner. I I do that when I'm wearing like a shortcut jacket. Yep. Okay. All right. I didn't know what it was called. French tuck. (laughs) As popularized by Mr. Tan France from Queer Eye. You know. I don't know who that is, but. You should watch that show. It's so good. Where do I find it? Is it it still on? Yeah, man. It's on Netflix. Old episodes. Oh, all right. And they released season four like last year, the year before. I'm pretty sure it was last year. And I think they're well, in production. Queer Eye for the five. Straight Guy was like a whole thing. Yeah, they revamped it though. Oh, I see. Okay. And it's the new show yeah, that I've I'm, watched. I remember that old one when I was. I literally younger. don't know. What, I, all I know is there's the one dude with the majestic long hair. Uh, as one of the characters. Yeah, Jonathan Van Ness. Ca- I guess he's not a character. That's one of the people. Yeah, Jonathan Hosts, Van Ness. Hosts, maybe. He's hmm. fantastic. That's all I know. I don't know anything else else about it. They like help this. It's like all those uh, TLC shows where they like help the. Yeah, kind That's of. That's what Queer Eye for the Straight Guy was. Yeah, it was on, I think, TLC. The vibe is a and lot like a different on the like, new Queer Eye, though. But don't they help like everyone? Like men or women? Queer Eye for the Straight Guy was exclusively for like these guys would help like straight men who didn't know how to dress and their girlfriends would be like, help him. He looks like a mess. Oh. And then they'd come in and what be like, What if they weren't straight and didn't know how to dress? They, they, just weren't, weren't, on, the show? they weren't on the show. It's not oh. the target audience. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. The new show is different. The new show, they make women heroes every once in a while. They call them heroes. They're, uh, their focuses <laughs> for the week. You guys just want to talk about Queer Eye for the rest of the episode? I'm down. We are like, so <laughs> off topic right now. Uh, we're not even on about? topic. Don't even give me that, cat. Yeah, you're Jeez. right. We weren't no, we topic. haven't even got there yet. Oh, can I also Considering say- Considering I know nothing about it, let's not. Can I also say, <laughs> as long as we're just kind of uh, meandering through through things and doing some bookkeeping too, is <laughs> our very own Cat Dwyer made an appearance on Ravel this week with a That's true. fantastic episode. I listened again today. and. Man, Kat, it was so good. Thank you for coming on that show. It was very good. I was stoked to be on it. It was fun. It was good. The edit came out well. Spreading the love on the Highline Network. Absolutely. It's cool. It's actually really cool to get to meet some of the other hosts that are like within our little community. So Totally. It was fun. Maybe we got to, we got to, I mean, so we've had Alex and Kevin on. Maybe we got to broaden our scopes on the whiskey bench whenever one of us take a break or something. Or I guess we've trial run four hosts at this point, so we could just start having people on if we want. Mm-hmm. Nice. Totally. Good ideas. Cat's dad. I would love to have my dad on. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I just don't know how to get him uh, technologically get him plugged in. Get him to Bozeman. I know. That's the thing. And I we'll just to... have him sit right here. That would be really great. Although, well, yeah. My dad was like, maybe I'll have a drink if I'm on the podcast with I'll, you. And I, I was like, make, absolutely we can, not. We can have a mocktail <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll do a mocktail. There you go. That'd be good, Because I mentioned actually. it before, right? Like, yeah. I'm sure there's some listeners that don't drink, so. Totally. Yeah. I could do a good mocktail. Totally. That would be good. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> My dad. <laughs> He's a funny guy. <laughs> so what did we want to do today? We wanted to kind of back clean up and do some updates on Afghanistan. Is that right? 
Uh, yeah, I think it's probably wise to uh, revisit Afghanistan again. Some developments. And frankly, we'll probably visit it again. Yeah, and I liked, Henning, that you uh, proposed we listen to that episode of Common Sense with what? what is the host Dan name? Dan Carlin. Again? Yep. Mr. Carlin right. himself. Yeah. Sweet, um, sweet. Dan Carlin. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was a really good episode to recommend. So I think um it definitely uh spurred some thoughts in my mind that mm-hmm. we could explore. So excellent. Mm-hmm. I th- we should say at the top, just like we did the last time, that we are discussing this the evening of September first, twenty twenty one. Correct. Events of course right. will evolve, will change. Two days ago the last plane, right? It was the thirtieth. The last plane left Afghanistan. In the cover of darkness. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. A minute before midnight. Right. On the 31st. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess I can dive in. Um, Go for it. Kind of first thoughts were to address kind of what is left, because I think um, it appears that our media in the United States is going to quickly pivot from this. It was a blip. Everyone was focused on it, and I think we will turn our attention to other things, and um, there are very real consequences for people that are still living it, even if we aren't paying attention. Some of those being um, all of the U.S. green card holders that are left, and it's untold numbers of hundreds, potentially thousands of people. And I think it's worth noting, because kind of originally in the rhetoric out of the White House when this mess began, green card holders were included in sort of the list of people that wouldn't be left behind. Um, and as soon as it, I think, became evident that we weren't going to be able to get those people out, we shifted the language to just focusing on U.S. citizens. But green card holders are permanent residents. These people have homes in the United States. These people have families. They have jobs. They have friends. They have communities in the United States that they are now not able to get home to. And that's pretty shameful in my mind. Um, And basically the State Department has said, you're on your own. There's lots of people who are in communication with these folks um, that uh, can't really help them other than kind of sharing their stories with journalists. But um, some Reports have indicated that the State Department has basically sent out helpful emails to the green card holders that are left behind with advice like, quote, keep a low profile, because that needed to be said, and, quote, make contingency plans to leave when it is safe to do so that do not rely on U.S. government assistance. So, like, I mean, that's what we have to offer, apparently, is like telling them obvious things and offering no actual tangible support or help. And it's horrifying. And there are people who there are young people who were supposed to be in school. There's uh, students from San Diego that are stuck. Um, A lot of these people, it sounds like the vast majority of cases uh, were you know, knew obviously that we were going to be leaving and knew that that likely meant that returning to Afghanistan would be very dangerous. So a lot of these people went home one last time in their mind to see extended family, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, And now they're stuck there. Um, And I think it's just it. I think it's worth pausing and like thinking about that, because like I said, these are people who have like 
jobs they can't get back to or homes that they are renting that they can't return to. And like, I just can't even wrap my head around how traumatic and terrifying that must be. Yeah. And like you just said, like, gotta keep thinking about that because the truth is, like you said, it's just the way it works. The media is going to just switch gears. Yeah. And in a couple of weeks, unless some other major thing materializes, it'll just kind of be forgotten. Yeah. So, yeah. Just consider that. Well, and the White House also is like, you know, trying to spin this as a success and, you know, pointing that with, out that, you know, there's maybe only 100 to 200, maybe 300 U.S. citizens left. But we gave them ample warning, you know, and they they didn't get to the airport, so they must want to stay. And Even though a lot of them did and got turned around. Well, that's and that is the other thing. There's lots of widespread reporting, especially international reporting of the Taliban stopping everybody from Afghans to green card holders to citizens of the United States and other countries and like not letting them get through checkpoints. So mm-hmm. like that's that's the reality of what's happening and has happened um, to me. Any American citizen left behind is a fucking problem, right? And I'm sure that there are some cases of people who are, you know, working with an NGO and and they feel that it's their duty to stay. I'm sure there are those cases, but there are several hundred people that are left there that would want to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, then there are the green card holders and then there are the tens of thousands of Afghan allies that we basically said, like, well, fuck, we're not going to get you out and we're not going to worry about it anymore. And yeah, I just think it's shameful. Realistically, it's more like hundreds of thousands. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. It's like the estimates range so widely. It's like, yeah, it's also shocking to me how why don't we have an accurate number? A hundred to three hundred U.S. citizens. How do we not know exactly how many U.S. citizens, you know, like what? I don't know. It just doesn't seem to be a priority to figure this out or to figure out how to get these people home. Is there a plan? Is the White House going to release a plan for how to get these people back, how to communicate with them? How do we know that the Taliban aren't going to use these people as leverage to extort money from us Mm -hmm. and other nations? You know, like. It's ridiculous. It puts us in a super vulnerable position, not to mention it's like (laughs) it's horrific to do to these human beings. Yeah. And this is a very important thing because I don't think that we were I think this is a developed after last week's recording, and correct me if I'm incorrect, please, but it has been confirmed that at least somebody gave the Taliban an actual list of names of allies, American citizens, green card holders. Yeah. And I don't know, I think their reasoning was like, so the Taliban can... So that the Taliban, so that the Taliban would know who to let through, and basically right. the White House has come back, and you know Biden was asked about this, and in his normal manner, kind of gave probably a <laughs> off message response, you know, um, and said like I can't confirm there might have been a list, I don't know, and then the White House walked it back the next day and said like we didn't give them some master list, but yes, in certain instances we provided the Taliban with specific names of people that we wanted them to let through the checkpoint. So yes, we gave the Taliban names and they didn't say it was one instance. They said there were multiple instances mm-hmm. where they did this. Not to mention when we left Bagram Air Base and allowed that to be overrun by the Taliban, 
there's all like basically every Afghan military members. All of that is documented in in at the base. So mm-hmm. the Taliban has their hands on all of that information now. Um. So yeah, we've <laughs> we've screwed these people. It's I don't know. I think some people realize the severity of that, and many may not. But any sort of list of that sort is more attuned to a uh, kill list yeah. than something useful for our uh, benefit. Yeah. Um, I also think it's worth noting because this is like another, well, I'm just, just going to be candid. I think this is another way that the White House is trying to spin this into a success. You know, Biden and his speech kind of um, seemed to suggest or imply that like the Americans that remain you know, had an, had w- enough warning, you know, for weeks that they should probably try to arrange to leave and they didn't. And almost implying that, you know, if anyone's left behind, it's their fault at this point. Um, and again, he didn't outright say that, but like the rhetoric in his speech sort of implied like they had enough warning. So if they didn't leave, they must want to stay. And um, I think it's worth noting that for political reasons, Biden and his administration kind of led all of us to believe that the Taliban taking over the country was not an imminent threat. I mean, he point Blake said on July 8th, quote, the likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. I trust the capacity of the Afghan military who is better trained, better equipped and more competent in terms of conducting war. So like and that message was repeated for weeks. So, I mean, how could you possibly say that people had enough warning that they should have left when at the, when throughout that entire process, you were publicly saying, like, it's fine. Us leaving is fine. Nothing. You know, it's not going to collapse. And I think that kind of speaks to the larger kind of like messaging issue that Biden has, which is that he's really trying to have it like both ways, like. They've argued that this catastrophe was totally inevitable and that they planned for every contingency. Right. Mm-hmm. He said that multiple times. Nothing we could do out our hands were tied. We planned for every contingency. It is what it is. But then at the same time, he claims that no one knew the Taliban would take Kabul as quickly as they did. And they didn't know that they would need a stronger military presence. <clears throat> and they didn't know that it would be a problem that they withdrew the military before they evacuated people. Right. You know, so how can you, you can't have and then, it both And then ways. also... Third thing, now it keeps being spun as some great success. Well, yeah, right. And again, that's my point. That, yeah. Like, there are so many people left behind. I think that's, I mean, it is laughable. Um, um, and I know I'm kind of just going off on a rant here, but I think these are really important, like, key pieces of information to keep in mind when we talk and think about this. Um, and I think this is, Something that was kind of also raised in the podcast that we listened to, Henning, mm-hmm. um, the Common Sense podcast. Am I getting that title right? I don't want to butcher yep, it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's his, he's common got, sense he has car- hardcore history, which is phenomenal, and right. then he has his Common Sense okay. podcast. Okay, yeah. So um, I think that there's this tendency to like conflate leaving Afghanistan and like drawing down our military presence there and then how it was this withdrawal was executed um and biden is definitely kind of leaning on 
well, we had to leave and it was going to be bad no matter what. So fuck it. We left. And the reality is there's a whole lot of nuance there. And there's there were a lot of bad decisions made along the way that made the situation much worse. And I'd like to note some of those bad decisions. One, us leaving in the middle of what's known as the spring fighting season. And this is something that, you know, I'm not like an Afghan military strategic expert by any means, but this is something that I've like learned through conversations with my father and people who study this stuff and and like reading. But um, basically, Afghanistan has brutal winters and it's long been understood that you basically groups like the Taliban or other, you know, kind of extremist guerrilla warfare groups bed down in the winter, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, When the Soviets left uh, Afghanistan decades ago, they left in the winter for this very reason. So the fact that we left at like the height of literally what is known as the spring fighting season strategically made no sense. Um, And yes, I understand that that deadline was originally put in place within Trump's plan, which for the record, I think was a mistake to ever negotiate with the Taliban and, and legitimize them. But us sticking to that and leaving during that time period, I think was a massive strategic error. Um, the other really key thing here that absolutely rests with Biden was insisting that we only keep 600 to 700 troops that forced our military into a position where they had a limited amount of resources and they had to make really tough decisions about what they were going to secure. They couldn't secure the embassy, Bagram, and the airport for departures with only 600 to 700 troops. So they had to make a really tough choice. Um, General Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, made this point when asked about this publicly. He said, if we were to keep both Bagram and the embassy going, that would be a significant number of military forces that would have exceeded what we had had or stayed the same or exceeded what we had. So we had to collapse one or the other. And the decision was made going out of HK at the airport was estimated to be the better tactical solution in accordance with the mission set we were given and in accordance with getting the troops down to about 600, 700 number. So like, they were set up to fail. And I don't think intentionally, but like, that was a bad decision to insist that we limit our footprint before we actually execute evacuating the people that need to be evacuated. Or like getting rid of sensitive material, you know? I mean, the embassy was literally like frantically burning shit before people were whisked off via helicopter from the rooftop. Right. And going back to your original, not your original, but a comment you made a little bit ago, it's like they're using the excuse for people stranded there that they had ample time to plan to leave. There's the, following that logic, that they had ample time to secure assets. Right. I mean, if if they're really claiming that this, you know, like we had to follow Trump's original plan. So you're like, okay, you knew this was coming up a year. Like, did they just do nothing? Well, and the other thing with that, too, that I think is really like important and worth noting that plan there again. I think it was a mistake to ever negotiate and like legitimize the Taliban by negotiating with them. Oh, yeah. Fully. Full stop. Uh, yeah. I think that was a mistake. I'm not 
like trying to defend Trump's decisions or the the uh, Doha agreement, as it's called. Right. Probably. Yeah. Never should have even sat down. Yeah. Yeah. But it was contingent on the Taliban honoring their part to what this is quoted from it, permanent and comprehensive ceasefire and a political roadmap to like sharing power with the Afghan government and or figuring out a way to, to transition power from the current president to something that both could agree upon. Well, they reneged on that entire thing as soon as they started taking Afghan bit by bit with by force. Right. So like we were well within our rights to say you didn't hold up your end of this agreement. We're not going to hold up ours and we're not leaving until we get every American out of here. Right. Mm -hmm. But we didn't do that. And that's that leads to the kind of the most critical mistake that we made that was reported by the Washington Post. And some of these these I'll give you links for show notes because some of this reporting, this isn't like conspiracy theory people on Twitter spreading these ideas. This is like reported by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Journal, right? So like Mm -hmm. this stuff is legitimate. And this is kind of the most shocking thing. So the Taliban reportedly, according to the Washington Post, within a very like long, lengthy piece where they at the top cite the people that they've interviewed for this piece, Prior to taking Kabul, the Taliban apparently came to the United States. Well, not literally came to the United States, but spoke to their counterparts in the U.S. government and told the Americans um, basically that they had a problem because as soon as the president left Kabul, the government essentially collapsed. It was chaos. People knew the Taliban were advancing and the president just left Basically, chaos broke out into the streets. Roaming gangs were like breaking in and stealing things. And it was chaos. Right. So the Taliban, when they realized this, they weren't planning on taking Kabul until the U.S. left, according to them. This is what was reported in The Washington Post. And when they realized that it was total chaos in Kabul, they came to the U.S. and they said. Either you guys can secure the city or we will secure the city. But like. It needs to be secured. And apparently the U.S. said, you secure the city. Our only mission is to like draw down and evacuate and we Mm. will control the airport because that is all we have capacity to control. Because, again, we were limited to 600, 700 troops. That to me is the most critical fucking error of this entire thing. Like that's that's ridiculous. There's a quote. In the piece, um, I'll just read a, a from the piece, uh, it says, uh, in a hastily arranged in-person meeting, senior U.S. military leaders in Doha, including Mackenzie, the commander of U.S. Central Command, spoke with Abdul Ghani Baradar, head of the Taliban's political wing. He said, Abdul said, quote, we have a problem. Uh, we have two options to deal with it. You, the United States military, take responsibility for securing Kabul or you have to allow us to do it. So we basically put ourselves in a position where we were entirely dependent on the Taliban to ensure safe passage of U.S. citizens to the airport, green card holders, our Afghan allies. We were dependent on the fucking Taliban to ensure that these people could get through and that we could complete our mission. And like I said before, there's countless reports of the Taliban beating people, not allowing them through checkpoints, making it difficult. I mean, for Christ's sakes, the amount of... So once the Taliban was securing the city, I mean, their checkpoints were vast. And the fact that that ISIS 
you know, terrorists were able to get through and get that close to the airport and bomb, I wouldn't be surprised if they let that them through. I mean, I don't understand, you know, like that's ridiculous. And the amount of mortars they had to to kill over 200 people. I mean, that wasn't just a small little bomb that you hide under your shirt. I mean, I, I would be shocked if the Taliban didn't intentionally let them through. You know, it's no skin off their back if they can pin the blame on ISIS and mm-hmm. more people die and are terrified. And Americans are reminded like, oh, yeah, we have to le- we do have to leave by the 31st because this is a fucking mess. You know, I mean, it, it was expedient for them when that happened. So anyway, to me, those are some of the really critical mistakes um, and also leaving Bagram Air Base in literally the middle of the night and not communicating to the 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 base commander the, from the Afghan military who was going to be taking over. They knew we were going to be leaving. Obviously, we didn't tell them specifically when we didn't even communicate to the to the new base commander. They literally got there the next day. This was reported by The Wall Street Journal in a lengthy piece. They got there the next day and the fucking generators were turned off. There's no electricity. And they showed up and were like, where is everybody? You know, I mean, talk about demoralizing people. Yeah. I mean, these are some of the key things that we did that really were shameful and and made this far worse than it needed to be, in my opinion. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, Ravel. We were laying in bed and I felt like the foundation of our marriage was being rocked. I'm thinking our core beliefs. What if our core beliefs are changing? So it felt like there was an earthquake. And one night the fault line revealed a chasm that had ripped right through our bed as Marv lay on one side and I on another. And I told him he wasn't the man I married. Mm. And that is probably the most wounding thing I've ever said to him. And now back to our conversation. I know that was a big rant. I'm I'm sorry, but I think it's worth it. No, it's it's all important stuff. Do you think that now that the Taliban has been legitimized by previous administrations, poor choices, um, do you think that there is any path to continuing to give them legitimacy and like forge a path for Afghanistan that yes, might not be under the ideal government that the U S wants or tried to install over the last two decades. But, um, nonetheless, would it be more in our interest to continue to negotiate and, you know, recognize the Taliban as an actual governmental force in the country as the political leaders and, uh, attempt diplomacy because in my mind like we're just gonna if we don't do that we might just be going back to like you know somebody else is gonna try what has been tried by the soviets before us what was tried by us after that 
you know, and maybe it's China's turn. And I know we talked about that last episode, but like, do we predict China can do any better? Like, just like Dan Carlin pointed out in that common sense episode, like there's a reason this area of the globe has been called for centuries, the graveyard of empires, like, because it's Mm -hmm. impossible. It's almost impossible to do what you want to do. If you are an economic military superpower, coming into this area i think to answer your first question the biden administration i think will has a strong incentive to pretend that the taliban is legitimate Mm -hmm. um especially if especially because there are so many Americans and permanent residents and allies that are left behind that could be used as leverage by the Taliban um, and to save face politically at home. I could see the administration um, making concessions to the Taliban and trying to legitimize them as um, a way to kind of whitewash them making concessions to the Taliban. Which plays into exactly what China wants as far as legitimizing. Yeah, well, totally. I mean, China has already said that they will recognize the Taliban. The so has Putin's Russia, Mm -hmm, right? Um, And and as I had mentioned in the last episode, I think or two episodes ago, um, you know, some some pundits in a kind of tongue in cheek way, but sadly, maybe true, have pointed out like you know, it's a very it's a low bar to be on like the UN Human Rights Council, right? Like fucking Cuba is a part of that. So uh, I. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. And and the reason why also China might actually be able to find success where we haven't been able to is frankly just because they're probably willing to back the Taliban and don't care what they do to the people of Afghanistan. I think yeah, that'll be a big advantage, mm-hmm. but they've already tried they have like a big copper mine operation in Afghanistan. The Chinese Communist Party does. Yeah. And they've already had issues trying to maintain security around that. Um, they've had workers killed. Right. So. I I think there are in uh, the podcast, uh, the Common Sense podcast pointed this out, like there are so many different like factions and so many different militant militant groups that like. I think the Taliban's probably going to have a hard time really like maintaining control in a, in a, like a, in a kind of unified functional way that the rest of the world views, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to define Afghanistan in the same way that like any Western nation is defined as a nation. Right. And not, and not like culturally, but I just think like it will be very hard to bring this like largely rural mountainous, divided nation under one banner they might be able to maintain power within like key provincial capitals but and yeah and i think china will have a hard time yeah having any real influence other than like bankrolling the taliban which they yeah. very well may do and that's that's a fair point because uh there was just a great jocko podcast with um let me make sure i get this right general don bolduck um it's like a four-hour interview you should listen to it it's very good insight um, into what was going on from the American side, just what they did in Afghan and things like that um, from someone that 
basically was there 20 years um, as a high-ranking general. I mean, all the way through gaining ranks, like lowest to, to highest, like in Afghanistan doing things. Mm-hmm. And he made a great point, Chaco as well, who spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and whatnot. He said, you know, the, ta- the Taliban will have a difficult time managing everything because he's like, look, truth is, we couldn't keep our eyes on everything all at once, right? It's just impossible because of, like you were saying, how divided it is and just the nature of the country. So the Taliban as well. I mean, they have to pick their battles. And that's why, like, the rural communities might not be as affected as much as, like, you know, the people of Kabul. Because it's a lot easier for the Taliban to have strict control of a city. Right. Well, and eventually to your, you had raised this point earlier, Torna, about like, you know, how do you bring like the stability mm-hmm. that people are craving, right? Like, how do you bring the infrastructure, right? Like, how do you make sure like lights stay on and water keeps running, right? Um, and I think, I mean, the Taliban has largely been sustained through like the illicit drug trade and i think they'll continue to do that and they'll have to be bankrolled probably by a country like china um who will invest in infrastructure as they do through their belt and road initiative around the world um and then they kind of extract the resources that they want from the nation and often enslave people to do the labor to extract those resources um so i think like it'll kind of look like that um And even if it's politically expedient for certain people in the West to pretend like it's legitimate for a while, I think it'll be I think it's going to continue to be a mess and it'll be hard for for anyone to acknowledge the Taliban as a serious world leader with a straight face. Um, But none of that is to say that this isn't beneficial to, you know, like China might have like long term, I think will have find it probably just as difficult as us to bring any kind of order or peace to the region but um but in the short term it certainly advances their um geostrategic interests and something that that podcast brought up that i thought was interesting was talking about kind of the history of afghanistan and there's been a lot of like memes floating around on the internet with like before and after pictures of what afghanistan looked like in the 70s and what it looks like now and how like women wore Western clothes and looked happy walking on streets that weren't like blown to rubble. And now it's obviously like chaotic and horrific. Um, And I think it's worth kind of revisiting that history. Um, So if we can do that, if that's okay with both of you to kind of walk through some of that Fire away, my friend. Um, So I think, so it's absolutely true that like obviously the Soviets and the Americans kind of fought a proxy war within Afghanistan. But a key thing that my father actually reminded me of was that the communists were there before America or this, well, before America had any like real role in what was happening there. Um, And the communists were responsible for overthrowing the king and the Mujahideen were sort of a reaction to the communists. So to go into more specifics. This is like late 70s, right? Yeah. So in 1973, the king was, there was a coup d'etat and the king was ousted from power. Um, and he was ousted from power by his cousin, 
who was named Mohammed Daud Khan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I think anyway, Mohammed Daud Khan, known as Daud Khan, he led the coup. He was a Marxist. Um, he belonged to what was called the um, PDPA or the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. And it's not confirmed, but it was then and now there's suspicion that the Soviets had a hand in that coup. They certainly, the PDPA certainly were like affiliated with the Soviets at the time, right? And got backing from them. So after the coup, Dowd, now the leader of the country, um, did away with the parliament, did away with the judiciary and established just like direct executive rule. Like all communist regimes, there was like land reform and, you know, political enemies were targeted and murdered and, you know, all the things that happen after a communist revolution. He also embarked on this mission to kind of like radically modernize the country. And for a country with like deeply devout and fundamentalist religious people, a lot of people were kind of horrified by the modernization, right? And mm-hmm. And so there was a like reaction to that. Um, and that is sort of what the Mujahideen of Afghanistan was kind of rooted in, was a response to communism within the country. And not necessarily for like economic theoretical reasons, but simply I think because of it, it was kind of the the atheistic modern values against kind of the deeply rooted Islamic values. And so basically there eventually was like inner party fighting within the PDPA. And at a certain point, Dowd was perceived to be like too weak in opposing America and in opposing capitalism. And so uh the PD the the party with key people from the party with help from the Afghan National Army overthrew him and that was known as the Saul revolution s-a-u-r i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly um and so then after that after he was ousted from power and kind of the true communists quote-unquote were within power um they established the republic of afghanistan and that lasted until like 1992 when the mujahideen officially like won but that whole period between when he was ousted in 1970 and 1992, that's sort of when this proxy war began. So, yeah, so basically, um, the Soviet backed Republic of Afghanistan and the Afghan Mujahideen went to war. The Mujahideen were backed by the United States, but by kind of like an unlikely band of, of, bedfellows here the United States, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. China, and the United Kingdom. Who all, for various reasons, I mean, China at that point was under Mao's leadership, but but Mao and, you know, Soviet Russia had already kind of, there was bad blood there. And so, like, they split, right? And so, like I said, an interesting mix of strange bedfellows, but they all backed the Mujahideen. Um, and this was a Cold War battle. And I think... Um, right, exactly. I mean... Yeah. It's easy to say, like, oh, you couldn't see the forest of the trees, but... That's so recent. I mean, early 70s, it's so recent to that Cold War era of total and complete, uh, I guess, communism being a total and complete enemy. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. At that point in time, the calculus was 
the Soviet Union is the greatest mm-hmm. threat to the free world. True. And I guess to be fair, I mean, that's kind of the trend of the entire globe. It was like, hey, there's this huge red wave. Right. Exactly. Going across the entire world. Right. That everyone kind of was just like, what at all cost? This has to be stopped. Right. Right. Which, I mean. And the U.S. was warned that like yeah. backing the Mujahideen, like these are radicals and they don't share our values and this could backfire. And obviously it did eventually. But mm-hmm. like. At that time, the calculus was, well, communism's a greater threat, so we're going to pursue that, and this is our means of doing so without having a nuclear war, right? And so, like, and this was all, and this was addressed in the podcast, but I think part of the nuance that was missed was, like, it was kind of presented in that episode as, you know, uh, Afghanistan was some kind of that this... The war was brought to Afghanistan by America and Russia. And I think there was a communist uprising and there was inevitably going to be a reaction from the fundamentalist Muslims in the country, whether or not the U.S. engaged or, you know, but certainly things were escalated because now those factions had a ton more backing from not just us, but again, all these other nations I listed and and the communists had more backing because they had the Soviet Union behind them, right? So, like, everything was heightened. But I think those underlying tensions were there whether we engaged or not. And and basically, that war was horrific for the Afghan people and, like, definitely changed the course of history for them and for the rest of the world, for us now sitting here talking about it. And the Soviets eventually, like, left. They gave up. They left. Right. Graveyard of empires, right? Um, but also worth noting, I think, the Soviets withdrew over the course of about two years. And as I said before, they left in the their final troops left in the middle of the winter. That drawdown was between April 1985 to January 1987. And the the Afghan government that the Soviets left in place was held on basically until 1992. So there mm-hmm. was it was several years, you know, what, five years until the Mujahideen won out. And I think it's also worth noting that. All of this is these kind of geo strategic relationships are super complicated and fluid. For example, like in World War II, we aligned ourselves with the Soviets to beat the Nazis, right? Right. Yeah. And and yes, Churchill wanted to when the Nazis were defeated, like go full bar and turn on the Soviets and finish it off. And who knows what the world would have looked like if we had done that. But we didn't. And, you know, the allies did not do that. Um but strategically, it made sense for a period of time for us to align ourselves with Soviet communist Russia so that we could beat one enemy that needed to be beaten. But we always knew they were a problem. And then we had to turn our attention to them. And it's kind of similar. I mean, the story of Afghanistan is has kind of parallel themes there. Right. And yeah, this is why I'm really interested. The The Dan Carlin podcast was. Um, a great podcast. I always think it's hilarious because he's always talking about, I'm going to make a bunch of people mad, but I must say what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I listening. I was like, okay, yeah, you didn't say anything that made me mad. Like you making sense, man. I'm vibing with you. You know, he, he brought up some recent history, but I, I really need to find a good resource that gives some perspective into at least conflict through World War One. Um, just because geopolitics, it's you can't just look at the last twenty years. Because now, as I'm trying to piece this together, it's easy to be like, "Oh, 
so stupid we've been there for 20 years. But like you've been mentioning with the whole pre-cult or the, the Cold War conflict leading up to it, I mean, there's at least 120 years of history that led up to us being there. Right. Um, and I just don't know much before like the 60s. But I've seen a lot of stuff from historians saying that like in the last 200 years, there's been a war in Afghanistan like at least every decade. And I think there's even like a hundred year war where Afghan was in conflict with India. And there's all of this history that, frankly, I don't think the West ever gets to learn about. The Indians backed the communists during the Cold War yeah. challenge, FYI. But. Right. And see, I'm so ignorant And look about how it. different our... So I'd like to find yeah. a good resource there because I don't think it's so simple as we had no business being there 20 years ago. I don't think that's quite true. And I guess my point of raising this is not to, it's not to defend us being there or to argue that we should stay longer or that we should have ever Mm -hmm. invaded or backed the Mujahideen or any of that. But I think it's just important context to keep in mind. And I also find it just really infuriating when kind of the meme culture, their hot take is like, well, Afghanistan's a shit show because of the United States. Afghanistan was a shit show bef- long before we got there. For and many will, hundreds of years. And will be yeah. long after we're gone, unfortunately. And those are like deeply rooted like cultural problems. Those are institutional problems. Those are things that like we can't fix clearly, right? And nor frankly should we, in my opinion. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I, I, I don't want a nation build. I don't really want to spend trillions of dollars in foreign lands. I don't have an interest in that. I don't think it's a good use of our resources. But as you had mentioned last time we spoke on this, Torna, like once we were there, we did have an obligation to yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. And, and the way, as I pointed out tonight, hopefully clearly, like the way we decided to exit, I think, I think we were being short-sighted. I think we were thinking about what was politically expedient. I think we were thinking about getting through the next news cycle. I think we wanted to have a awesome 9-11 PR stunt where we could say, you know, we ended the war and look how great and brave Biden is for doing that. He did what Obama couldn't even do, you know, without thinking about the realistic consequences of what that means. And and yeah, we I mean, we made a mess of it. We could have left in a way that I think was much more responsible and and not to say that the Taliban wouldn't have eventually succeeded or or the country wouldn't have descended into chaos it likely would clearly i mean we look at the history of it that's the trend right but we owed it to our allies to our fucking citizens and to our green card holder permanent residents to like get them out we should have done that and we didn't and now we're going to pretend like it was a success and it doesn't really matter that they're still there because maybe they want to be there because they didn't get to the airport the Taliban said they let them through. We gave them a list of their names and they didn't. So I guess they want to stay like that's pathetic. That's a total cop out. And frankly, we should be ashamed that we tolerated that. Yeah. And Dan made a good point in that. And we made the same point last week. You know, as we had already said, this is the third time like Trump should have never met with the Taliban. Right. And he did. And some sort of concession was made. And like Dan said, I don't know what that was necessarily, but he made the point like, hey, Biden's the president now. He's got a lot of power. And in the sake of securing the lives of allies and American citizens, like forget whatever was in that contract. Like 
Well, again, and as I said, the Taliban broke their end of it. We, yeah, we weren't yeah, exactly. bound to anything. And he's broken how many countless, you know, executive orders has Biden overturned from Trump, right? I mean, or even like rules that were changed, like in the Endangered Species Act. Or, I mean, there are countless examples of Biden sort of reneging on Trump's policies. Mm. This was something that literally impacted people's human beings' lives in the immediate, and all of a sudden his hands are tied, and that's a cop. Well, is it is it right. possible that that move was just because the Taliban might be appropriately viewed as a hairline trigger, you know, like sensitive situation, we might as well just try and hold up our end of, like you pointed out, what has already not been held up, but we might as well do our best considering how volatile things could be if we blatantly ignored what Trump had tried to set up? I think this should have been addressed months ago when he first took office before they had advanced as far as they had. Um, And even if it hadn't been addressed, which it hadn't, um, I think that when the Afghan president left and Kabul descended into chaos and the Taliban came to us and said, either we or you are going to secure the city. They weren't demanding that they were going to secure the city. We still had a leverage at Mm. that point and Mm -hmm. we relinquished Mm. our leverage. That was the key to me. That's the most key critical mistake that we made. Had we said, and, and, and it would have required more boots on the ground, but at that point, the Taliban wasn't, according to the Taliban and this reporting in the Washington Post, they weren't planning on taking the city until we left. I think we still had leverage at that point. And it would have required more people and maybe it would have required, you know, being there a few extra days or another week. We're the most powerful military in the world. I mean, it, that's... <laughs> and they're like... A ragtag group of terrorists. Are we seriously saying that like we were intimidated by them and and said that we, you know, like we've been here for 20 years fighting you. But yeah, we're going to just put ourselves and all of our people that are left here in an incredibly vulnerable position because you say so. Fuck that. No. You know, Mm. you secure the city. You make sure you get your people out. I mean, and again, all of this, it's like there were really critical mistakes that I think were made like in the middle of the chaos but why weren't these things thought of and accounted for months ago you know like this there's lots of reporting that like if i have access to it our president has access to it of of the taliban advancing through the country you know like it wasn't as if we had no idea that they weren't advancing everybody knew that they were we dropped the ball yeah that's i think that's yeah that's where I'm coming from in this mm. whole situation is it's there's a lot of good commentary on it. And it's fair to say that, yes, Taliban was going to take it over inevitably and, and all of this. But it just doesn't make any sense because things have been going pretty smoothly for a while there. And we have a lot of resources as far as gathering intel and making decisions off of that. And so. I just can't make sense of it. I just cannot make any sense of of how hectic and crazy everything was. Well, and Biden in April promised that we wouldn't have a, quote, hasty rush to the exit 
And he said that it would be done, quote, responsibly, deliberately and safely in full coordination with our allies and our partners. And White House, like senior leadership, literally were like leaving for vacation the weekend that things fell apart. And like weren't prepared for what other people knew was going to happen. I don't know how I don't know why they weren't planning for this. I, I, you know, I don't I don't know how the intelligence was so off or not communicated. Yeah, clearly. for such a big thing, it's weird to see all of just the playing politics that was going on that week. Biden not having any press conferences, Kamala off doing stuff for publicity's sake. And just weird, just weird. Incompetence at best, mm-hmm. malice at worst. I don't know. Which is tough because I generally ascribe to, um, don't assume malice where incompetence could be. Right. The culprit, you know? It's one or the other. I mean, am I wrong in, in thinking that? Like, I mean, on the surface, yeah, it seems like incompetence, um, and arrogance and and short-term political thinking and thinking about what does this look like in a year no i mean like short-term like what does this look like in the next news cycle what is this going to look like on september 11th what you know and you know the irony is like it's gonna look fucking bad now Mm -hmm. is what it's gonna look like but i think the short-term thinking was maybe we can um, pull this off yeah because we have midterms to think about fam exactly well and now it's like pivot the conversation because we don't, you know, his his poll numbers plummeted immediately right. after this mess, right? So now it's like pivot. Let's not talk about it anymore. Let's spend three point five trillion domestically and create a whole new entitlement state and hope everyone forgets about this and votes for us again. You know, like I think that's literally craven politicians. Honestly, that's what it is. Craven politicians across the board. And honestly, part of that sounds like it would work because I mean, how many? American people are actually connected to the plight of Afghanistan, you know, like if we can pass the thing that spends a lot of money and creates what you call an entitlement state, like that feels like it directly impacts me. So I'll vote for the person who gave me $600 a month, you know, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Might work. I don't know. This is why I'm still mostly apolitical. I think just every party is ass backwards and I just am disgusted by it all that's why i'm a libertarian because <laughs> <laughs> i'm disgusted by it all too <laughs> yeah it's gross i guess we don't have anything uplifting or like oh, constructive damn. to say on this unfortunately but i just i guess i personally just in the last couple of weeks have just heard like things that are frustrating that i thought was worth totally no i I appreciate that. Thanks for driving this episode. Yeah. It was very helpful. It's definitely been hard. There's a lot of stuff coming out of news reports coming out. Honestly, the best source that I think is out there right now for this kind of stuff is Atlas News. Yeah, I've been tuned into them because of you. And yeah, it's they are on top of it. Mm hmm. All the time and stories that are coming out all over the place that are incorrect. And even I last week was like, is this really happening? And Atlas News quickly corrects or addresses the things floating around. Hmm. 
they've been very accurate. So I think that's a good resource for anyone that might be interested. Yeah, there's just a lot going on. And it's, uh, I mean, we, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but it's just mind boggling the amount of lives that are, well, the amount of people being murdered as we speak and that are going to continue to die because of our decisions. And all, and that's like horrific. And again, I think this is a part of that distinction that needs to be made. Like it's completely horrific. What will like the chaos and violence that will ensue in the country now that our presence is gone. And that's the part that I think is totally inevitable no matter when we leave largely. I mean, maybe the time scale changes, but like, I think it descending into chaos is inevitable the people that we have a responsibility to that we have now left that could have been avoided. And that's the part that I think should haunt all of us. You know, I like, I can't get it out of my head that there are like literally a father who had, who like had like a high tech, well-paying, like good job on the East coast with a wife and children. And he is now, they went home to visit her family in Afghanistan and they are trapped there now. Like, that is insane to me. Mm. I can't imagine how horrifying that must be. They're literally like last that was reported. They're like hold, held up in some, you know, apartment hiding his daughters, you know, because mm-hmm. the Taliban is literally going door to door and assessing what women and what age are in the homes and literally marking the doors with like, you know, symbols for the fighters to then go back and they'll divvy up and, you know, marry, quote unquote, these young girls. I mean, it's horrific. I just, anyway, we all know that, but the people that we have, I don't think everyone knows that. Maybe they don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. But, and the fact that like, again, these are people who like they're permanent residents, like their home is the United States. We have welcomed them here. They are one step from being a U.S. citizen. Like these aren't just like a seasonal worker who maybe was here for a short period of time. These are people who've lived here for years, you know? Yeah. And like I said, they have whole lives established here and now they never, I mean, could you imagine that? That's like your worst nightmare. You can't go home and not mm-hmm. only can you not go home, but you're like trapped with like a bloodthirsty enemy who is going to kill you and probably like rape your daughters. Like that is, I can't imagine how horrifying that must be for these people. And the fact that we're just going to like, and it's pretend re- like and it's, it's not happening. And it's the reality for hundreds of thousands of That's people. That's the thing, mm-hmm. yeah. And we're just going to pretend like it's not happening because it doesn't. It's inconvenient for the president and his administration and for his party to get you know to keep the house and the senate in two years. I mean that it's just it's so like I said it's craven. It's just it's disgusting that this is where we're at. And I don't know how you fix it. I don't know what you do. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, Senate Intel communities will like look into it and issue a report in six months. And, you know, but what do we do? Like, we're now in a position like, how do we get those people out? Do we have to like, because like I said, the Taliban can potentially hold them hostage. Do, are we going to have to go back with force to get these people out? Like, how, what is it going to look like? You know, we probably won't do that. Because that'll be a stain on Biden and his reputation. So we'll probably just let these people rot. Yeah, there'll be a choice few that were probably forgotten that are key assets. And there'll be some SO operations that because the, the fact is we'll always have special forces in Afghanistan. We just won't know about it. They'll go in, they'll do reconnaissance and they'll do extraction missions for a choice few. But definitely none of our Afghani al- allies are going to get 
even a consideration. Do you think, though, with like potentially thousands, not just the allies, but the green card holders and the hundreds of U.S. citizens left, we're going to have special forces sneak these people out for that many people? Not that many people, but choice few. Yeah. If any other key, you know, military guys are left over or things like that or important people, um, I have no doubt that that probably will occur. But for the majority, that's not that's not going to happen. And so it'll take a it'll take a big change um, for anything like that to happen. So I guess that's where we are. Yeah. So again, we can only really seriously think about the people that are stuck there. Also, seriously think about all the service men and women that are uh, tormented over the events. Um, obviously, the families of thirteen soldiers that whose lives were lost. Not to mention the hundreds of Afghani. Yeah. Civilians and and servicemen and women that were were killed, their families, everything like that. It's a a deep ripple of of torment for a lot of people, and we're seeing people stepping down from the military and all sorts of stuff. It's going to continue to happen. Some people are resigning, and at like what level? Uh, I'm not sure, but I've seen reports of of people, and I know seeing seeing reports of not reports, but um perspectives of people that I follow and and keep an eye on that are beyond upset to say the least so there's a lot of a hurt going on right now and and I don't think we will see the 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 key people in leadership positions who made these decisions these like critical mistakes that mm-hmm. we reviewed tonight I highly doubt any there are going to be like serious repercussions for any of those people Right, and that's a good, another thing that was mentioned in that podcast. It's like, right. the truth is, these people don't really get held accountable. Yeah. They'll keep making, you know, they'll get their pensions, they'll continue to get their, like, cushy backdoor deals where they, you know, are a board member and when they retire and rake in cash and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, or they'll keep getting elected or whoever, you know, whatever position it is, like, there won't. They won't suffer the consequences of their mistakes, but lots of other people will. And on that cheery note, cheers, I guess. I guess, yeah. I don't even really want to clink to that. I don't want to clink either. (laughs) Sorry for bringing us down, guys. No, that's all right. This has been tormenting me for a couple weeks now. But it's good to talk about it. Good to get it out there. And uh, I guess the closing thing that I that I can say is, which we've already mentioned, like, no matter what happens, keep this in the forward or the front of your mind. Don't uh, don't just brush it under the rug. One, I think that this will come up again. Um, we're not done in Afghanistan. I can almost guarantee you that. But what that looks like, uh, the future will will tell. Thank you for joining us on The Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Mm-hmm.
Stephen, what do you think Ravel is about? I think Ravel is a podcast about how to effectively market our cult. No, no, no. Ravel is a show that shares the basics on how to get into the afterlife in three easy steps. Okay, okay, cut it out, you guys. Ravel is really about why SpongeBob SquarePants is the best story for teaching atonement theories. But how will your belief in God's atonement change when we prove that aliens exist? I mean, it would probably cause an even greater number of spiritual emergencies in the church. Or maybe everyone is just going to conclude that aliens are demons because we can't explain them. If you are thinking about all of these questions too, come have a drink with us. Follow Ravel wherever you get your podcasts. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.